I don't have to apologize. I rolled a net 20. I didn't see it. Anything could have happened. (laughs) (laughs) Hello. Welcome to Tencent Takes, the podcast where we roll natural ones on our charisma checks, one issue at a time. My name is Mike Thompson, and as always, I am joined by my co-host, the paladin of pain herself, Jessica Frazier. I would like to say that I roll higher than a nat one for charisma. Thank you. Yes, you absolutely do. You 100% roll higher than I do on charisma check. As always, if you are new to the show, the purpose of this podcast is to check out comics in ways that are both fun and informative. We always like to look at the coolest, the weirdest, and the silliest moments in comic books and how they're woven into the larger fabric of pop culture and history. If you're enjoying the show so far and you want to help us grow, it'd be a huge help if you could rate or review us on Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, and Good Pods, because all of that really helps with our discoverability. And as always, please remember that we have pulled our content off of Spotify, given how the platform is continuing to actively promote voices spreading vaccine disinformation. Today, we are finishing up our series on Dungeons & Dragons, early history in comic books, and looking at the series published by DC in the late 1980s. This is the third of three episodes where we've talked about the brand's history and its first forays into comics. And if you want to listen from the beginning, check out episode 31, where we talked about a fantasy comic called The Realm and how it basically managed to tell a D&D story in comics before D&D itself actually hit the medium. And then if you've enjoyed these episodes and you want to hear more D&D content, Our friends over at Villain Demands Network are actually spinning their D&D podcast, Last Tavern on the Left, back up. So they're basically recording their RPG sessions as a podcast, and the first new episode just dropped, I think. We'll have a link in the show notes if you're interested in checking them out. But before we get onto the topic at hand today, Jessica, what is one cool thing that you have read or watched lately? I just finished watching Moon Knight. It was so freaking good. And I loved the mystery of figuring out what was happening at the same time as the main character. Just getting Mm -hmm. little bits and pieces of when he would wake up. Mm-hmm. And then when he did, it would be super interesting. And that actor is so freaking talented. It's insane. He's incredibly convincing as the different characters. And I love the costume change with each of the times that he switches personas while he's wearing the suit. Yeah, both Sarah and I really enjoyed that series overall. We loved how it felt very different than a lot of the other stuff that we get from the MCU. and. We both have our own thoughts on the way it ended. Yeah, we really enjoyed it overall. So Layla, towards the very end, was totally giving off, like, main female character in the mummy vibes, like, towards the very end. Oh, yeah. 100%. I just was like, "Mm, yes, (laughs) I'm cool with this. (laughs) Yeah. No, I I was down with that. And I, I liked most of the twists that they did at the end, too. There was one that both Sarah and I were like, we feel like it was done more so you could give Oscar Isaac a really cool line. Honestly, it kind of muddied the narrative a bit. And yeah, other than that, we enjoyed it. I don't know. I'm very excited about what the current phase of the MCU is and where it's going because it feels like everything that we've gotten has been very different. And, you know, it hasn't always hit like with the Eternals, but for the most part, it's been pretty good. Yeah, absolutely. What about you? What have you been reading or watching recently? 
Oh man. So I've got like four or five great things that I've consumed recently, but I'll, I'll lock it down. We finally got around to the Batman now that it's on HBO Max and we really liked it. But then this weekend I wound up picking up something that I really want to talk about. Brian of Brian's Comics in Petaluma, which is one of our main shops, recently posted about a new book from Humanoids called Retroactive. And it looked really cool. And I saw a couple of other people talking about it online. So I asked him to pull it for me. And this is a comic that's written and illustrated by Ibrahim Mustafa. It's colored by Brad Simpson and it's lettered by Hassan Atmane Elhau. Apologies if I didn't get the name pronunciation right. This is the same team that did another comic for Humanoids called Count. That's apparently pretty good. I haven't read it, but it looks rad. So this is a story about how time travel is discovered at some point in the future, and then it's kept secret by various world governments intelligence agencies. Imagine CIA-level agencies working to protect the timeline as part of a whole new incarnation of the Cold War. Like, okay, love that. It's really good. Like. The story follows this one temporal agent named Tarek Abdelnesser, and he's trapped in this time loop where he keeps on living and dying over and over again while he's trying to stop a terrorist attack. So imagine like, Yikes. what was that movie with Jake Gyllenhaal a few years ago where he's trying to stop oh. a terrorist attack and then he's stuck in a time loop? You're not talking about Spider-Man, right? No. <laughs> this was, it was good. It was directed, I think, by Duncan Jones, the guy who did Moon, but it it gives off similar vibes and it's very smart and it's also very smartly written and it is beautifully illustrated and I just, I really loved it. And it's a one-shot graphic novel and I'm just, I'm so glad that Brian put this on my radar and I was able to pick it up. It's great. That's awesome. He's always got such good recommendations. It's funny because I wound up just kind of wandering into his shop by chance with a friend about... I want to say six years ago and he has never steered me wrong with a recommendation and it's just he's such a great guy and I'm so glad that we have him as a local comic shop Mm -hmm. I second that are you ready to uh, close out our episodes on D&D let's finish it all right in our last episode we touched on DC Comics involvement with the D&D brand After TSR had published three graphic novels adapting the first book in the Dragonlance Chronicles, which is called Dragons of Autumn Twilight by Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman, TSR decided to work with one of the biggest names in the industry, and they struck a licensing deal with DC Comics to produce a number of books based on various D&D properties. So two of those were more graphic novels based on the Dragonlance Chronicles, which adapted the second book of the trilogy but they never concluded the story. The fifth graphic novel was published in 1991, right before the deal between TSR and DC ended. And since we've already discussed those books, today we're going to focus on what happened when the two groups started working together. So the first official D&D comics were the Dragonlance Saga books that we focused on last episode. But DC's books were the first official ongoing series based on the TSR properties. DC really went all in and produced comics based on the following properties while the deal was in place. Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Dragonlance, Forgotten Realms, Gamma Rodders, and Spelljammer. And there was even a miniseries adapting another Dungeons and Dragons novel, but this time it was from the Forgotten Realms Avatar series of novels, which those are actually really fun novels. And one of my favorites is 
the direct sequel to that trilogy. But that seems to be the only other like novel adaptation that DC did. By the way, like we're totally going to come back and do another episode on Gamma Rodders at some point because it's something that's completely different from the D&D brand. But imagine Robotech, you know, with like giant controllable mechs that are piloted by people, except they're called Bioborgs. I am going to send you a picture of what this looks like because I can't fully do this justice. It's basically, it's animals that are converted into mechs, but they sort of have their own personalities. Wait, are they still like fleshy and shit? Oh, yeah. And they, like, they're, I think they're self-aware too. What? Oh, no, that's so gross in so many ways. Oh, it's so funny though, because here's the thing. It gets weird. I'm going to send you two images and then I want you to paint a word picture. Sorry, I lied. I'm I'm sending you three, not two, because they're all amazing. Okay, whoa. Let me absorb this. (laughs) So this first one, wow, is Muscor the Oxoid. And it basically, it has the ox at the bottom and it it starts pointing out all the different things he has. And oh boy, does he have just a veritable arsenal on his back. And he has a back weapon, a shoulder weapon, a rear weapon, another shoulder weapon. He's got like all these like... Big old, arguably very 80s looking lasers. And he's got these glasses on. He looks very 80s. He's got dice around his neck. 100%. Those look like dice. But at any rate, he just, he has this armor hat. And he has, like I said, he's got all these guns. And he looks like full in motion. And he is a good, there's a person next to him. Yeah, it's like those old childhood like textbook illustrations where they have the one person to show the scale, like for dinosaurs. Remember those? Yes, I absolutely do. And this thing is the size of a dinosaur. I feel like this thing could look into your second story window without lifting its neck. Yeah. So, so it's huge. Yeah, so this was basically a tabletop combat game where you played as a pilot of a mech, but it was just, it was weird and it was goofy as... You will see with the other two illustrations that I sent you. I have so many questions, though. Maybe I'll wait until we look at the other ones. Okay, we have Hoag the Kangaroid. (laughs) At least they're all self-explanatory. This one has, like, a mech leg. So you know it just bounces. Ooh, it's got a spiky tail, like a dinosaur spiky kind of tail situation. Mm -hmm. It has scale-like armor down its back. It also is wearing very cool sunglasses and earrings. Oh, extreme this 80s. Has like extreme tassel earrings. Extreme, yes. Absolutely. It definitely has mech other hands. This one's just got all these replaced body parts. This one's kind of a, a creepy one. So two its two hands were replaced by something that shoots, I don't know, probably a spear. Looks like it has like a porthole. It's got all these it's got a gun on its back with like wings on it. This thing is just wild. So this one has a back weapon, a tail weapon, a front leg weapon, two front leg weapons, excuse me, and a head weapon. And this one does not have a person standing next to it, but I would assume it's very large. Yeah. And then the... Oh, jeez, Louise. (laughs) So this one is Squawk the Penguinoid. Oh, my gosh. This one is basically a penguin wearing, like, an inner... This is the most ridiculous one so far. This You could tell they were giving up. This had to have been at the back of the deck. And they were like, I don't know, man. I, have we done a penguin yet? What would I don't know what a penguin would even be doing here. Give him an inner tube, man. Don't penguins wear inner tubes? That makes sense. He looks like he's wearing shorts. Like this penguin is yeah. full on ready for the beach. And he's yeah. got like an umbrella hat too. Is the umbrella like an umbrella hat, but then a gun under it? Is the, I think umbrella, the umbrella hat is actually like shielding a satellite dish. the gun? 
It's a satellite dish. Okay. I think it's a satellite dish. That makes much more sense because I was just like, this guy just, he's themed. I get it. (laughs) But... And then his bottom is just like guns and like he's got little mech feet. Okay, but I need to read what weapons he's got because he has flapper weapon. He has tummy weapons. Tummy weapons. (laughs) It says tummy here. It does. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So that's this penguin. He's also got he's got some very like Jordy kind of sunglasses. Yeah. He's got that visor look. Yeah. So he's definitely giving like Trek at the Beach vibes is like really what yes. I'm getting here. Like yeah, mech Trek that's, at the Beach. That's a perfect way to describe it. So now, OK, we're obviously we're not going to talk about this much longer, but DC did a, a comic book based on this property. And it's amazing. The, the other thing is it's drawn in this 80s manga style. So it's, it's weird and it's goofy and it's something that we're going to have Kelly back on from Goblin Bros to talk about. I'm going to table any and all questions that I might have had about these crazy things until that point, I guess. Yeah, it will surprise no one to learn that I have a copy of this corset sitting somewhere in my garage right now. <laughs> oh, I would be shocked if you didn't. Honestly, this sounds like something that you absolutely have just lying yeah. around somewhere. <laughs> so back on topic, we noted in our last episode that it looked like Dragonlance seemed poised for a comeback. And then D&D Direct happened like right after we recorded. And it turns out that that was very much the case. It was announced that there's going to be both a tactical board game titled Warriors of Kryn and a campaign book called Shadow of the Dragon Queen. And then on top of that, Spelljammer, which is basically D&D in space. It's a science fantasy series. They're also bringing that back as a campaign setting. Kind of weird symmetry with the timing of our episodes. Love that shit. We couldn't have planned it any better. Oh, man, I know. (laughs) We didn't even plan it. We didn't. (laughs) It just kind of happened. I'm totally fine with this. (laughs) Anyways, Dragonlance and Advanced Dungeons & Dragons were the first two series that DC produced. Both first issues have cover dates of December 1988, and then they supposedly hit store shelves around the same time, which was actually around September. But Advanced D&D is considered to be the first actual appearance of D&D in an ongoing series, and the secondary market has definitely embraced that. So we're going to focus on Advanced Dungeons & Dragons today. We talked about bit about Advanced Dungeons and Dragons in our first episode, and it was originally introduced in the 70s. Basically, it was an update to the core set of rules. There were like major additions, including new classes and, and you know from supplements and magazine articles, as well as an alignment system with nine alignments rather than the previous three alignment system that was originally used in the game. So this was like kind of... Mm. This brought in a lot of the elements that we're more familiar with as players today, that these elements have stuck around. But I was originally confused as to why a comic would be named after a rule set or brand instead of a setting like they did with all the other series, especially considering that this comic takes place in the Forgotten Realm city of Waterdeep. But it clicked. Yeah, it's one of those things where I was really kind of thrown because it seemed to stick out a bit. But it clicked when I was doing research and I saw work on the second edition of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons 
began in 1987 and then that edition was published in 89. So this feels like kind of that cross-media synergy that companies love to do to build brand awareness. And then from what I understand, the revised Advanced Dungeons & Dragons system eliminated a bunch of publicly controversial elements like devils and demons and quote-unquote evil classes like assassins Ugh, if not yeah. the satanic panic getting involved <laughs> i know i mean like people forget how big that was in the 80s but dungeons and dragons had come under a lot of scrutiny for criticisms leveled at them by the religious right and then the other thing is that tsr was trying to emphasize heroic adventures and teamwork and they were really it sounds like they were really marketing this revision towards younger players. So it, it makes sense that they would use a comic book to generate awareness as well. And one extra feature that was really neat about these books was that they came with a couple of pages of RPG material at the end of each issue. So you'd see things like maps or stats for the characters in the comic. And basically, this was a way anyone who was playing the game could add in the characters and settings of the comic into their own campaigns, which I thought was pretty cool. It was super neat. Yeah. Yeah. The Advanced D&D comic really benefited from having a dedicated creative team during its three-year existence. They had a veteran comic writer named Michael Fleischer who co-wrote the first few issues with artist Jan Dersima, but Dan Mishkin wound up serving as the primary author while Dersima stayed on art duties. And that said, there was a D&D writer named Jeff Grubb who wrote some of the issues in the series. Well, Ron Randall, we talked about him the last episode. He was the guy who penciled the fifth Dragonlance graphic novel. And then Tom Mandrake occasionally filled in on pencil duties. Somewhat interesting is that this looks like this is one of the final American comic series that Fleischer worked on before he went back to school for advanced education. And then he pivoted from a career in comic books to a career in anthropology. Talk about a career shift. Mishkin seemed like a pretty solid choice to serve as Fleischer's successor on the book, to be honest. He basically had been working almost exclusively for DC Comics throughout the 80s, and he had created the characters Amethyst, Princess of Gemworld, and Blue Devil. Dursima, meanwhile, is this really badass artist who's worked on just about every brand you can think of, but I think she is most known for her work on Star Wars, as that's the one she's worked on more than anything else. But that said, in the 80s, she'd done a bunch of issues for DC's fantasy series, Arion, Lord of Atlantis, and The Warlord. So now that we have that background out of the way, would you be willing to provide us with a quick introductory summary to Advanced Dungeons & Dragons? Who's the party? What's their initial quest? Certainly. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to keep this so incredibly brief. It's going to be so brief. It's like a deep intro to those first couple of issues. Oh my gosh, they so are. So I'm not going to not going to do that to everyone. I'm just going to give a very a light touch, give this a light touch. So we have Timoth Eyesbright, who is a centaur and a fighter. Vajra Valmijar, a human fighter and former slave gladiator. Onyx the Invincible, who is a dwarf warrior. Priam Agravar, a paladin with tiny hands and a not-so-secret drinking problem. <laughs> Connor, who's a human rogue. He's a shady motherfucker, by the way. Yes. And Siriana of Shadowdale, who is a magical half-elf. And their first real quest was to try to help Siriana find her sister, but really they hit a lot of side quests along the way, like fighting the Chasm Hordes, which seems to be a pack of killer wasps the size of cows, but with, like, 
scary humanoid facial features and like actual muscly arms and hands. <laughs> it was uh, it was very strange. I'm not going to lie. A little awkward. And the overarching story is that basically lizard dudes are trying to gain power and they should not gain power. That's really it. It's more lizard dudes, which we see a lot in D&D, apparently. <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah, I'm curious. Out of the main party, who was your favorite? Oh, hands down, Timoth. Like, he had the best style. Dude, he had these cool, I suppose they were supposed to be horse ears, but they kind of look like cat ears. They ha- He's got the open shirt kind of a look, but it's really just like his fur. Mm-hmm. Very 80s. Definitely looked like a Thundercat. Definitely giving me like, like Centaur Thundercat vibes. Yeah, no, his face reminds me a lot of uh, Lionel. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah. So overall, him, a close second would be Vajra because she's just a fucking badass and she just was not taking shit from anybody. Yeah, I'm basically I'm flipped with you. I like Vajra a lot. And then Timoth is like my close second. I really liked both of those characters. Nice. A lot. And I, I actually really liked how androgynous Vajra was. I thought that was really cool. She, yeah, she was very muscled. She wasn't dressed in your typical woman's outfit within the fantasy genre. And even her haircut was very androgynous. You know, it seems like it's really short and then it turns out she's actually got long hair, but it's tied in this very, it's like a tight wrap. So it's almost yeah. like a really long ponytail that goes like halfway down her back. But like, you don't see that a lot of time. <laughs> and she's also just, she looks like a CrossFit athlete. Like <laughs> she's oh, yeah. oh, absolutely. Yeah. Everything is very utilitarian about her, which I like. Yeah, same. Yeah, I thought the characters actually all felt pretty unique. Like, my understanding is that they were brand new D&D characters created for the comic, as opposed to the Dragonlance series, which was actually focusing on a lot of previously established characters and taking place, like, right before major events in the novels. But what really stood out to me was how we actually started the adventure off with a couple of disability issues. So not only does Priam have his Donald Trump baby hands, Preventing him from serving as a paladin, which I still don't <laughs> quite understand, but whatever. I don't either. <laughs> but whatever. Why was that a thing? <laughs> I, it was weird. That was a big thing with that first villain was that he basically like he withered Priam's hands and then he turned a fire elemental into like a tiny little wizened old gnome. I don't mm, whatever. No, but here's the thing. The whole thing was supposed to be that his stupid tiny little hands couldn't even hold up a stupid sword. But then in one of the shots, he's, I cannot hold a sword. And then in one of the next shots, he's like literally holding himself up on a rope. Like, what the Ugh. fuck? Like, clearly you're lying. Clearly you're just trying to get out of doing any sort of co- contribution to this team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but my tiny hands. His tiny hands were strong enough to hold, you know, flasks of alcohol, because that's the other issue that he has, is that he had an alcohol addiction that he has to overcome early on, which I mean, it's understandable. Like his father was murdered by the main villain of that first story arc, like right in front of him. And it was yeah. after he had been crippled, so he couldn't save his father. It made sense yeah, in certain ways. The guy's ways, got but... demons. Yeah. Yes. But yeah, and like the other one was that there was Syriana, the half-elf. Syriana found herself gradually turning to crystal as kind of like the price that she was paying whenever she used magic. And I really thought it was cool that the first thing the party did was actually to seek out this like legendary magical blacksmith to help Priam regain the use of his hands. I found it kind of refreshing. Do you feel the same way? 
Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I really feel like they really did try to make sure that their party was taken care of before they went and did anything else, which yeah. that's cool. Yeah, like they came together as part of like a vengeance redemption quest. But like the first thing they did was try to, to help their new friends, which was like awesome. Like it felt like something that would happen in a D&D adventure. I was just going to say that feels like something that's really true to something you would be playing with your friends because you want them to succeed. If they succeed, you succeed. Yeah, exactly. A major early plot point is that Syriana has this evil sister who was like, I don't know, she was like a dark essence separated from Syriana as a child, but then became her own being. And at the conclusion of that first story, the two merge into a single individual who now goes by Kiriani and acknowledges that she has like good and evil halves making up her whole, which basically like technically it throws her into like the neutral alignment, but this whole thing is revisited about 10 issues later where she's split apart and then recombined into a new version of Kiriani. Like I was kind of surprised by that plot twist, to be honest. Like, how did you feel about it? Yeah, I knew there was going to be some sort of dynamic where they met up and became super powerful or they had to have done something because they were such opposites. And I find it fascinating that for a time frame where they were really trying to get away from things like demons and other things, they had like a full on exorcism on like a child who, by the way, was like, oh, yeah. nude. it was all very strange. Yeah, it's very weird. And it's a very off putting image because it's almost like a vestigial limb is like popping out of this yes. elf child. Yes. Um, it's not it's great. very it's not great. weird. Uh, yeah. If she was like at least like older, I feel like I might have felt a little bit better. But since it was like a full ass child, I was like, this feels very not great. <laughs> like... But yeah, it was definitely off putting and weird. I'm not going to lie. On the other hand, going off of the whole presence of demons and devils, there's also presences of gods that we get. So one recurring character that we get is the goddess Salune as Luna. And she is the wo woman running the inn that the heroes frequent. And I kind of dug how she was acting as like the Bosley to, to the hero's angels. If, I don't know exactly <laughs> how else to describe it. She doesn't always give them their jobs, but at certain times she does. And then other times she's an advisor. Like, how did that sit with you? I thought it was kind of a neat twist. Yeah, I really liked it. She was not only like the touchstone for some of these adventures and she was the, the friendly face they would come back to, but it was such a wink to the audience every time she stepped in because we mm -hmm. found out pretty early in that she was this goddess. Yeah, it's like issue two, maybe three, where yeah. she like recounts how she came to be there. Yeah, exactly. So it was really fun to be in on that. And nobody else really knew, but you as the audience knew. So it was almost like she turned to the camera and wink at you. And you were like, oh, there she is. There she is. <laughs> yeah. And I think Onyx later on figures it out. And she basically uses ventriloquism on him when he tries to tell the whole bar. And, and he, he's trying to spill her secret to the bar and then she basically uses her ventriloquism spell to be like i'm buying booze for the entire bar right now yeah, <laughs> sucker that's what you get that is what you get she could have done so much worse to you you're yeah. lucky that's all she did yeah okay so side question what D, D god would you like to see set up a bar in water deep and what do you think their staple booze would be oh so Lyra would be fun for the illusion aspect, and it would be interesting to see the bartender sell the absolute worst drink, but by illusion, the patrons would think them to be the finest drink they had ever tasted, probably basing on the patron in question's taste to like really win them over. 
and then charge double, you know, for the trickery aspect. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. It'd be in some, like, shithole, and it just would look amazing to people, but really they're in some fucking dilapidated (laughs) barn. (laughs) Yeah, just basically peddling all the well drinks and then making everyone think that they're great. Yeah, I love that. Exactly. Well, what about you? Oh, probably mask. I feel like the God of Shadows and Intrigue would actually have one of those those bars that's like hidden in plain sight, but getting inside it would be this like cool experience where you have to know the right code knocks and shit. And then once you get in, it's full of comfy booths to scheme and hatch plots in while there's some nice music <laughs> that makes it hard for people to eavesdrop on you. And then it would have like really classy mixed drinks with like surprising flavors. Nice. I like that. Yeah. yeah. I always think it's the more complicated gods that are more fun, but okay. Now, the series itself lasted for a total of 36 issues plus an annual, but it's always broken up into like very digestible stories that are at most four issues. I'm curious, like out of the issues that you read, which stories were your favorite and why? So I really liked the issues with Timoth being a messenger called Cat's Paw. I just, I don't know. I liked Timoth. He was a cool character and I liked seeing... His little side quest courier shenanigans. Well, that was a really funny story, too. And that's the one where I think Onyx gets turned into a a ventriloquist's dummy by Luna. Because, like, one of the core things is that their bar tab has gotten so big that Timoth takes a courier job so that he can earn money and pay off their tab. (laughs) (laughs) The struggle's real. But at the same time, it feels like something that you would encounter as, like, a D&D party where the dungeon master is like, I don't fucking know. like. (laughs) you have to deliver packages (laughs) but i mean that kind of ties into my overall feeling with the series which is that it was funny and it and it worked best when it had these very good fantasy adventures but there was also a fair amount of humor with it so that was the one where eventually they're being chased by a beholder and a mind flayer through the sewers and timoth and onyx wind up like they find a rusty sword embedded in a wall and they basically wait for the beholder to come around the corner and they've got the sword bent back and then they just let it loose and it like thwacks the beholder in his center eye. Yep. And, and the way that they end up like defeating the, those guys, like it was very clever and very funny. Like my favorite stories, I had a couple. Like there was the Spirit of Mirth, which is M-Y-R-R-T-H, which Mirth was a jester who... The story is that this is, there's this kind of like cool conspiracy mystery where it has the party investigating the Jester's Guild, which you know mm-hmm. originally felt like kind of a cool spin. And then they're hired by a ghost and they originally thought that he wanted them to figure out who murdered him. And he was like, no, I just I died after I ate too much food at a feast. I went how I wanted to go. But there were some like A plus puns all the way throughout it. There's a plot where it turns out that Mirth's skeleton is being turned into a fire-breathing kaiju to exact revenge on behalf of the guild <laughs> against the city, which was just mm, chef's kiss. Amazing. And, <laughs> and then the other one that I really enjoyed was this one shot towards the end of the series that was called The Wager That Saved Waterdeep. And that's where Vajra and Timoth are in the middle of an arm wrestling match. And they're so focused on it that they won't stop to fight off a monster invasion. And it, you know, it turns out that their contest like mirrors some constellations and it's created a rift in reality and the monsters are coming through. So like the overall story is both, it's both epic and silly. And I really like how it ends on this actually very funny note, but I think like all of these stories drove home how good this comic was, especially when it was allowed to be funny. 
I think I've told you this story before, but like when I was a creative writer for a game studio for like a couple of years, one of the games that I was on started to fall off in terms of revenue because that's, you know, what happens with free to play games after they've been online for several years. But the COs were like so insistent on, we can make it back. We just need to make the story more epic. And then they would get really mad where we would add in little fun elements that actually wound up being really popular every now and then because they didn't get that you can't be epic all the time. It just, after a while, if you're just epic, epic, it just, it feels overwhelming and flat. Yeah. There's nowhere to ramp up to. Yeah. You need to take moments to breathe and like, just kind of have fun. And I mean, a lot of the times D&D players, like when you ask them what, what was their favorite moment of a campaign, it's like the small, funny, weird moments that really stick mm-hmm. out. It's not killing Strahd von Zarovich. It's not, it's not meeting the Lady of Pain. It's, oh, you know, I took a wrong step and I fell off this wall and landed somewhere else. It's, you know, goofy little moments like that. Last game, I threw a plate of shrimp at a prince. That was yeah. <laughs> that was my funny moment. I'm still thinking about it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, like the game that I'm in now, there was a moment where like I came out into the living room after the game and Sarah was like, are you okay? And I'm like, my dragon almost died. Like my little pet dragon that I had that hangs out on my shoulder almost oh. died. And like, I was like, he's fine. But I was like, clearly still upset about it. It's funny how we get these emotional investments and, you know, the things that stick out to us. It's so true. Yeah. Okay, my final question. Throughout the series, anytime a magic user casts a spell, they basically, they have to shout out the spell's name. So (laughs) what do you think would be the most awkward spell to cast if that was a requirement? Oh my god, well this is hard because I play a bard, so like, you usually don't want people to know that you're casting the spells that you're casting at any given moment. (laughs) So I'm all like, Otto's Irresistible Dance! (laughs) (laughs) vicious mockery you know it's just like i don't know i feel like anything from the bard would sound so stupid coming at someone that you would be like is this guy for real yeah well like in vox machina there's the bard scanlan and he'll just sit there and like he'll strum the guitar and also be like scanlan's hand and you see the hand like manifest (laughs) oh too funny Oh, yeah. What do you think would be the weirdest thing to have to <sighs> shout out in spellcasting? Probably like one of the seduction spells. Like there's one where it's like devilish charm where you're ba- like you, oh, you cast it to seduce people. Like <laughs> so uh, awkward. It, like it would be so awkward and so creepy. And I can just see like a pickup artist in D&D like with a stupid fur hat and earrings like walking around and just oh, my God. walking up to the waitress and being or the tavern wench and being like, hello devilish charm like oh god that'd be so awkward you know what at least it would match the level of grossness that it is at least there would be some sort of warning god if you can swerve do you remember how back in the mid aughts there was like the vh1 reality series about like pickup artists training other pickup artists it was so gross it's so gross there oh. you know what tiktok still does shit like that the the weird incel tiktok is now trying to teach men how to like pretend like they have feelings and pretend to get close to people it's really gross it's gross mm, it's, it's real gross <laughs> i hate it <laughs> i hate it so much hard, hard pass nope oh. Yep, yep, that's that's what we were reduced to. That's why I hang out with a lot of queer people. No. <laughs> I do not trust straight white men. <laughs> <laughs>
I don't trust yeah, God, them. Yeah, God, yeah. Moving right along from that. Let me, let me say I don't trust cis, straight, hetero men. Trans people, come at me. You're great. We're friends. We're, we're homies. <laughs> we're, we're good. Trans non-binary people, we're homies. Oh, man. Appropriate, since we're about to come into Pride Month when this drops. Oh, lovely. What a, what a great month. <laughs> <laughs> what a gay month. Can we move Pride Month to October? Because, oh, I mean, oh, I like where you're going with this. Like, the queer community owns like horror monsters. We've already discussed this. The, the horror Bobby genre is, is absolutely is, gay. Yeah. Fight me. Go back to our Halloween episode from 2021 where we interviewed DG Chichester and talked all about queer themes and horror. Um, uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> but yeah, like, you know, sorry. <laughs> like, cryptids and serial killers, they're all ours now. <laughs> I don't know. I just, I really wish that we got a month where it's not hot as balls and I don't have to feel like I need to like show up in a tank top to like, you know, celebrate my sexuality. And I feel like that would be a really great time with Halloween. Yeah. Like you said, and just, you could mesh the, the outfits with the, the holiday. I mean, man, that's, mm, mm, I right. like where your head's at my dude. Mm-hmm. I have good ideas sometimes. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah, before we discuss what came after the series, I'm curious, what were your overall feelings of it? it? I mean, I think you're you're kind of on board with me. It sounds like you enjoyed it, but I just want to confirm. Oh, I think it was fun. It was, yeah, it was a good time, you know, and had a lot of cool adventures, a lot of different adventures. I feel like all of the characters really got to shine. They all had their own spotlights and their own kind of struggles that they were dealing with and a separate storyline, which I really like. Sometimes they don't flesh out all of the characters and they kind of have some be really obvious side characters. And I don't feel like that was the situation here. No. And the other thing that I really enjoyed actually was how easy it feels in every issue to pick up what's going on. Like even if you came in in the middle of a story, it's very digestible. It's very easy to understand what's going on. And they make a point of reiterating who the characters are so you're not confused. And they're all visually different enough and and they behave in different enough ways that you get a very strong vibe for who they are it was i felt it's a stronger comic than i would have expected from licensed content to be completely honest yeah yeah absolutely now in 1991 the licensing deal between dc and tsr wound up coming to an end and this is where things go a bit into the realm of both rumor and hearsay but it's kind of juicy and fun, and so I want to talk about it. So we're going down Ooh, yeah. that rabbit hole. Spill. <laughs> Do it. <Yeah. laughs> okay, now apparently the various TSR books were in general selling well enough that DC was in negotiations to develop three more comics, including Greyhawk and a Ravenloft series that was going to be written by fantasy writer uh, James Lauder, who he's the one who actually wrote that, that novel that I mentioned beforehand called Prince of Lies which is it's oh, okay. the direct sequel to the Avatar trilogy, which is about a group of adventurers that become gods in the Forgotten Realms setting. And then Prince of Lies is basically what happens immediately afterwards and, and kind of you know reconciling these mortal beings that are now celestial authority figures. Interesting. So, yeah, it's good. I'll, I'll see if I can dig out my copy. I'll loan it to you. It's good. Oh. Yeah, Louder himself has actually talked about that in blog comments. But it's never really, as far as I can tell, been acknowledged by TSR or DC. And mm. it turns out things went sideways between the two companies because TSR was basically trying to start up their own comics imprint and then sneak it past DC. 
The company. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. The company formed a division in California that was known as TSR West, and it was ostensibly focused on pursuing TV and movie deals. But then they also produced a line of like, in quotes, comic modules, which were, they were basically, they were comic books, but with more pages of gaming material in the back. And I guess the way that they were spitting this was like, oh, these are RPG modules that just happen to feature comic book narratives so that we can like, you know, establish the setting rather than doing long form fiction. So they like, they didn't technically violate their licensing agreement with DC, which I'm guessing granted the publisher exclusive comic rights to TSR properties, but you know, didn't really sit well with the house of Superman. Like I haven't actually been able to track down any of those comic modules yet, but now I kind of want to and just see what they were like, but yeah, they didn't sell well. And TSR West shut down the project in 1991 also. So hope. Yep. But from what I understand, the ongoing DC series still in production were given the opportunity to wind things down. So readers really, you know, they got farewells to these comics as opposed to the other books that we've looked at in in these episodes that just kind of like end mid-story. How dare (sighs) you put a part two of four and then never write three or four. You can fuck off into the sun. That is all (laughs) I have to say about that. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't know what we're talking about, go back and check out episode 31, The Realm, which also features the amazing guest star Kelly Galton from our local tabletop store, Goblin Bros. Yeah, so Advanced Dungeons & Dragons had the heroes meeting up outside their favorite tavern and saying goodbye as an epilogue to their latest adventure. And actually, I really liked that. It felt like the actual conclusion to a campaign where where everyone was able to get together one last time and kind of tie up all the loose ends. It was nice. Yeah. Yeah. And then as far as I can tell, none of the comics that DC put out have ever been collected or reprinted. The only way that you can read them is to track down old copies or read scanned versions online, which isn't great. DC, listen up. That's a real missed fucking opportunity, my dudes. Yeah, because this stuff's good. And that's it. For a while, these were pretty easy to pick up in bargain bins. The last time you and I were at Brian's, I found a bunch of Forgotten Realms issues that I didn't have, and they were like three bucks a pop. But yeah. but the speculation market's been really picking up around all these books lately because we're due to get a new D&D movie next year, and it's going to be called Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves. And it's got like Chris Pine and Michelle Rodriguez, and it's being directed by, I think, the guys who did Spider-Man Homecoming, the first one. Yeah, Chris Pine, if you want to come on and talk about it, we'd be happy to have you. We would 100%. be happy to have we'll you. We'll move stuff around for Honestly. you. Honestly. Like, we I, I guess we can make it happen you know maybe yeah i mean listen guests are clamoring to be on here so why would chris pine be any different <laughs> right I, I don't know it's gonna be real awkward though when he and jason momoa want to come on the same date <laughs> oh man we're gonna have to you know what we'll have to rochambeau that's the only fair way to play that it's the only fair way i'll we'll just have to do it back to back as in they're they're standing back to back and just hanging out with us oh better yet Better yet, we all need to be in the same room, first and foremost. Well, of course. Secondarily, we probably need to end this with, similarly, on topic with our comic today, with an arm wrestle. Yes. 100%. An arm wrestle battle. <laughs> Who gets the date? <laughs> yeah. We'll reschedule whoever else. Like, you can still be on. It's okay. Jason or Chris, you can still be on. Like, you know. <laughs> yeah. 
Who's the better boyfriend, Steve Trevor or, or Arthur Curry? Oh, no. Anyway. <laughs> anyway, so Dungeons & Dragons Honor Among Thieves is coming out next year, and as a result, the speculation market is starting to heat up again. The first few issues of Advanced Dungeons & Dragons are now like getting ludicrously expensive. Like I looked it up earlier, and people have you know, the really highly graded issues of the first issue of AD&D. And I don't know if they're actually selling for this much, but they're asking for like $1,000 for that first issue. And whatever. I'm really glad I picked it up. I picked up the entire series a couple of years ago. I think I grabbed it for 40 bucks, which was reasonable because there's 37 issues. But yeah, I, yeah, absolutely. Like if someone is interested in the series now and they want to try to pick it up, they're going to have to throw down a lot of money for it. Or they're going to have to pirate it online because there's no other option. There's no collected edition. And that always really bums me out because a lot of these licensed products wind up having incredibly complicated rights and it makes them really hard to get reprinted and then have the stories find new readers, which is a shame because a lot of the times this stuff is really good and I would love to see it continue to live on. But... After all that, there weren't many TSR comics for the rest of the 90s. Marvel did a single-issue tie-in to the Dragon Strike board game. TSR itself published four individual comics that were given away as promotional giveaways. And then there was also another promotional comic that was apparently given away with the original Baldur's Gate video game. After that, like TSR was acquired by Wizards of the Coast. And then Kenzer & Company got the license for a few years before it bounced over to Devil's Due Publishing which lasted until 2008. Apparently, it was given back in the middle of financial difficulties for Devil's Due. And then once the dust settled, the license has been with IDW ever since. And along with all the other Hasbro properties, I think they're all over there. IDW has published nearly 20 different D&D series since then. And it sounds like they've mainly been miniseries. I haven't read a lot of them, but they're all on Hoopla. And what little I have read is it's genuinely pretty fun. Like, per usual, if you look these up on Hoopla, grab the trades instead of the individual issues so you don't max out your borrow limit in, like, two hours. But... Yeah, don't don't be like me. <laughs> yeah, they don't make it easy to a lot of the times to figure that out, but... Yeah. But, yeah, I'm curious. If you were going to, like, take one adventure setting and then have it told in comic book form, what would you do? Motherfucking Spelljammer. Give me yeah. some space, dungeons, and dragons. <laughs> space dragons. Yeah. I mean, the good news is that those issues are still pretty easy to get a hold of. But Oh, they yeah. do exist. Yeah, nice. the old DC ones do. I don't think they cost much. I got the first couple from Brian's in the dollar grab bags. I feel like I'm going to be looking on uh, eBay, because I already saw on eBay that I can get those other freaking mech ones the the gamma rotters oh, you can get gamma, those for incredibly cheap nobody cares about gamma rotters and i'm so excited they're to do throwing them away them. yeah like yes, it's great. i will i will get it's as fantastic. many of those as i can <laughs> yeah 100 percent. yeah i feel like someone's I, gonna pay me to pick those up from them probably <laughs> like obviously aside from seeing another gamma rotters comic take all of my money i'm actually i'm really bummed that dc didn't get the opportunity to do a ravenloft series i would have really enjoyed that because i loved the ravenloft books when i was a teenager you fucking love ravenloft you talk I about do. ravenloft so much <laughs> i love I, it no keep doing it <laughs> it's like gothic horror with dungeons and dragons mixed in and then like at the top of it all in this like 
weird realm of despair. There are these dreadlords who like, they're not even like the real masters of everything. They're their own chess pieces being manipulated by the dark powers. But like, they're all like just a bunch of petty bitches who keep on fucking with each other. And it's really fun. And I really like it a lot. And at the same time, like you get some really great heroic adventures in the middle of all this. So I'd love to see that come back. Yeah. So that's the end of our look at the early history of Dungeons and Dragons and comics. What are your final thoughts after three episodes of talking about it? Well, it hasn't put me off of playing Dungeons and Dragons, which I think is (laughs) a very good sign. (laughs) No, I think it was really interesting. I'm, I'm relatively new, as I said in our first episode of this series. I'm relatively new to playing Dungeons and Dragons. I'm having a really fun time and I'm really having a fun time learning more about the world outside of the one I'm campaigning in currently. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's fascinating to sit there and look at all of this and realize this brand is 50 years old almost and seeing how things have kind of grown and adapted over time. And it's also funny to me, like just, you know, seeing what was controversial back when these comics were being produced. But yeah, it's cool to see the origins and see what things originally took root and how they grew out from that. Well, yeah. How do you feel about cantering along like Timoth to the brain wrinkles section? Let me grab two halves of a coconut and we can make our merry way forward. (laughs) Excellent. (laughs) All right. We are now at brain wrinkles, which is the part of the show where we talk about one thing that's been bouncing around our noggins lately. Jessica, I have been talking for a bit, so you want to go first? Hmm, certainly. Well, I was recently, I cannot remember where I heard this, so I cannot give this other podcast their due credit, but I was listening to a podcast that was talking about Dungeons & Dragons, and they had a guest on from a podcast called Dungeons & Diagnoses, Hmm. and it's from the Global Healthy Living Foundation. but. It's really neat. I want to give you the description that they have on here. It says, explore a new twist on the Dungeons & Dragons universe that brings the lives of those who have different lifestyles, live with conditions, and are differently abled to the forefront. So it's neat. And what I like about the way that the, the host was describing the show is that they take into consideration that some of the characters have disabilities, that they can't just heal everything at the end of the day. Some of them have issues walking long distances. And so that plays a part instead of the the DM being like, okay, and then, you know, it was like half a day's walk and then you got there. You have to make accommodations for people who need to stop and rest or other type things like that. And so it really plays to that in a more realistic way where there's still the magic. There's still that ability to heal, but with a more kind of realistic take on it. That's really cool. I really like that. Yeah. And to my detriment, I have not started listening to it um, just yet because it is it is the actual game. And so I really do want to start from the very beginning and start with number one. So I haven't quite delved into it, but it's definitely on my listen list. So to, to get going. Nice. Yeah. I mean, because Kelly also mentioned there was another book that was coming out that was also taking in different types of disabilities and able-bodied 
awareness. It was like a Kickstarted like supplement and I'm yeah. blanking on the name now, but it was like, I'm really glad to see how something like D and D is becoming more inclusive and helping, you know, provide people who live with this stuff with their own version of representation. It's really nice. Exactly. Exactly. And I could see the value of also having that ability to leave your situation through fantasy, but there is, I feel like there is value also for people who maybe don't have disabilities to also look at this and see what people who do might be thinking about as they're doing things like playing these campaigns. You know, if mm-hmm. it's nice to be able to take yourself out of it, but what if you can't take yourself out of a situation on a daily basis? You know, that's something you live with and you probably think about a lot. Yeah. And it's an element that isn't entirely unfamiliar to people who play RPGs. Like a lot of RPGs, you could sit there and take disadvantages when you're building your character, but then all you get extra points to spend elsewhere. This feels like kind of an evolution of that, which is it's cool. I like that. You know? Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Well, what about you? Oh, okay. So probably Uh-oh. again. No, it's good. It's good. Apropos oh, good. Okay. again. <laughs> it's apropos going into Pride Month, but I really want to talk about Heartstopper on Netflix because it has been sitting in my head now for, I want to say, two to three weeks. I binged it on my own, and then I wound up showing it to Sarah, and it's just so good. It's a queer teen romance that's based on a graphic novel series that was originally a webtoon and then they printed it as a graphic novel and it's literally it's like one of the best tv shows i've ever watched it's about a kid in the uk named charlie he starts a new semester at school and he basically is assigned to share a desk with this kid named nick who is the school's rugby king and the two of them immediately become fast friends and then eventually they become boyfriends and i'm not spoiling anything it happens like a couple of episodes in And everything about it focuses on them and their friends navigating life as teenagers, but it's great. There are these wonderful little comic book elements with the visuals. All the kids are incredible actors. In fact, one of them, one of them who is trans just got added to the new Doctor Who series that's coming out, I think. And the characters all understand things like healthy and unhealthy relationship behavior and nothing about the overall story feels contrived. There is no part of this show where I rolled my eyes and I went like, oh, come on. I really wish I'd had something like this when I was a teenager and trying to figure things out for myself because I grew up in this really nice household in a nice town, but things like sex and sexuality just weren't talked about. And it was something that people then and in that setting really made you feel ashamed of being the least bit different about. And, you know, this was in the 90s and Gay Straight Alliance at my school was established but it was so much of a battle that it actually was documented on the front page of the San Francisco Chronicle at the time. Oh my God. Yeah. It's so refreshing to see stuff like this being made available for the new generation. And it just, it really feels like one of those rare special things that only comes along once in a while. And it just, it makes me happy that there is all of this wonderful media for younger audiences like my kids and it's going to provide them with real valid representation. I don't know how my kids are going to identify. I don't know how things are going to go because they're still fairly young, but it's nice to know that however things work out for them, 
there will be this media representation along with Sarah and I being nothing but supportive, hopefully. <laughs> like, I'd like to think yeah. it will be nothing but supportive. Yeah. I think that this is really hopeful for the future, too, that more things like this will become available. I'm sure we won't have just this. I'm sure more things will become available as we progress, really, as a society and allowing people so. to be their truer selves or their truest selves, I should say. Yeah, I hope so. I, I am very worried about how things are going right now politically. Yeah. But at the same time, like it's nice to see stuff like this because when you and I were growing up, we didn't have queer representation in media. We had Ellen and we had Will and Grace and mm, whatever. Yeah, and we didn't have an in-between and you and I are an in-between. We live in that world of in-between. I'm pansexual. You're openly bisexual. And we didn't have that option. You were either gay or you were straight. So I was always like, well, I guess everyone just thinks ladies are hot. Yeah. And I mean, it's one of the reasons that I have a tough time with pride in certain ways, because the queer community is still a lot of the time very unaccepting of people like us because we can pass as heteronormative. I'm in a domestic partnership with a woman. I have stepkids. Like I seem like the cis hetero white male who has a nuclear family now with two dogs and, and literally we were getting a white picket fence stuck in. We're the problem or we seem like we're the problem, <laughs> but we're not. Yeah, oh. exactly. Exactly. But yeah, it's just, it's something that has been stuck in my head. And if you haven't watched Heartstopper on Netflix, go check it out. It reminds me of Ted Lasso in that it is like a hug as an entire season of television. That's awesome. I love yeah. that. Well, we will be back in two weeks, and I'm very excited to not be writing and hosting an episode for a little bit. Yeah, and we'll talk about whatever Jessica has lined up for us. But until then, we will see you in the stacks. Thanks for listening to Tencent Takes. Accessibility is important to us, so text transcriptions of each of our published episodes can be found on our website. This episode was hosted by Mike Thompson and Jessica Frazier, written by Mike Thompson, and edited by Jessica Frazier. Our intro theme was written and performed by Jared Emerson Johnson of Bay Area Sound. Our credits and transition music is Pursuit of Life by Evan McDonald and was purchased with a standard license from Premium Beat. Our banner graphics were designed by Sarah Frank, who you can find at www.lookmomdraws.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, ask us questions, or tell us about how we got something wrong, please head over to tencenttakes.com or shoot an email to tencenttakes at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter. The official podcast account is Tencent Takes. Jessica is Jessica Witha and Jessica spelled with a K. And Mike is Van Sau, V-A-N-S-A-U. If you'd like to support us, be sure to download, rate, and review wherever you listen. Stay safe out there. And support your local comic shop. <laughs>